Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to episode 27 of the Footmarks Podcast. I'm your host, Baram Kazi. You can find me at Def Mango on Twitter. And with me, as always, is Jared Kimber. And the topic for today is Zulu against the world, because we'll be discussing Lance Klusner's 99 World Cup at length and also the sort of player he was. So it's kind of a throwback episode in that regard. And what better time to have it than during a World Cup? But uh, let's go back to 99. Of course, uh, he was the player of the tournament and uh, baseballing all-rounders. They're such a prime commodity in cricket. They're akin to gold dust. We've seen over the years, you know, Imran Khan, Kapil Dev, Ian Botham, Richard Hadley. And if you come to the modern era, you think of Ben Stokes 2019 and uh, Hardik Pandya currently. Of course, he's injured and we wish that he gets well soon. But uh, Jared, I was five in 1999, right? So I haven't seen Lance Klusner do his thing live. So I just want to know what was it like when he took the world by... It's easy to lose sleep when you're worried about your health insurance plan. But when you have a family counting on you to take care of them, having the right coverage is more important than ever. Anthem Health Keepers plans can help. With low to no cost coverage for you and your family. So you never go it alone. That's our Anthem. Click to learn more. Because he wasn't expected to, right? So there were hmm. two really freakish all-rounders in that tournament, Abdul Razak and and uh, Lance Klusner. And yeah. Abdul Razak, I remember there was some talk that he could be quite exciting and everything else, but Lance Klusner was almost thought of as a problem for South Africa in that hmm. he wasn't quite in their best four bowlers and he batted okay, but he didn't really fit into their batting order all that much. Um, and the, in that particular tournament, they, they played so horrendously, but almost from the first game, it was just clear that he hit the ball in a way that other people didn't. And I don't know, you know, maybe Afridi was coming through and some other big hitters mm-hmm. were coming through at that point, but they all, and, and Abdul Razak's a perfect example of that. They all struck the ball yeah. sort of the way that you strike a ball, like, you know, in a cricket mm-hmm. way. And Kluzner always looked like even when he was making runs, it was an error. Right, because it was such a weird technique, and he looked like a baseballer, and he looked too big to be a batter. You know all these things that you that you heard, but the actual power was so extraordinary. And I think the power is one side of things. What I don't think we realised at that stage was, and we see it with modern South African players. They've actually they have better techniques than Klusner, but it's all based on a very similar thing, which is if you bowl it slightly offline, they are so strong that they can just play their best shot and hit it for four or six, right? Mm. And looking back, that's what Klusner did. And you had a player like Michael Bevan in that similar era who, if you bowled Yorkers to him, he could get them away for boundaries, right, occasionally. But most players couldn't, but he could. Mm -hmm. But Klusner would destroy your Yorkers, right? Like he would muscle them in such a way that there was a psychological damage to the bowler because it's like, I can't bowl another Yorker. It's not that... Oh, maybe, you know, I need, no, I just can't bowl another Yorker. And the way that he hit the ball was so revolutionary and so different to everyone else. And the way he looked and the way he batted and the way he thought about batting was also different to everyone else that he was a T20 force, despite the fact that there was no T20 cricket. It's so, you know, and, and again, it's not like someone like a Freedy who was just a natural free spirit. There was something about Kluzner that it was 
calculated and it was muscular mm. and it was it was right in your face. And in that World Cup, no one could get him out. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned how he had that ability to hit Yorkers to the boundary and also decent deliveries, you know, to the boundary. He had a very um, unique sort of technique and very, very powerful. So boundary riders didn't bother him in particular. And you also mentioned about this one time where Ponter, Ricky Ponting, he was in awe of the way Lance Klusner struck the ball, right? Mm. Such a big time basher and way ahead of his time, probably born like... Probably born 15 years too early, I'd say. Yeah. Well, I remember, when, so when I talked to Ponta, I'm trying to remember when that was, but it was maybe around 2015-ish. You know, it might have been mid mm. World Cup feature for that. And uh, we had an hour with him and, and Cricket Info said, what do you want to do? And I said, what if we just talk to him about the evolution of batting, right, in one mm. day cricket? Because no one had ever talked, and he was really excited to do that. Like, when first we got there, he was like, oh, this is going to be crap. And then I told him what it was. He was like, oh, wow. And he brought up Luzner <laughs> on his own. And they, they went into a training session in 99. And he was just doing range hitting. And they were all just sitting there going. And it was a combination <laughs> of the power that he hit the ball. That wouldn't work very well for podcasts. I left my mouth agape then, everyone, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it was a combination of how he hit the ball, but also that he was doing range hitting. It hadn't actually occurred to them that that is something that they should be looking at doing, which is now pretty much all international teams do it. And most, most international players and, and first-class players will do that if they're you know, playing in T20 cricket or one-day cricket. But so it's a combination of like, he was a different kind of athlete. And I think he had, you sometimes see this when someone, it's a bit like Benny Howell, who is a batter, who then he has freedom with his second skill to do whatever he wants, right? And Klusner is very similar. He was a bowler who had a freedom to bat the way he wanted because he was never going to bat number three or number four. Like, that wasn't going to be mm. his job, right? And so he could just bat and experiment. And then you, you're matching his natural athletic gifts and also probably the way he saw the game, which is a little bit different than other players, with Bob Woolmer, who is mm. like, you know, that, that art and science of, of cricket, right? And those things coming together just meant that it was very, very different. So you can imagine being a... A, a professional, you know, cricketer in 1999 coming into an, a session and watching someone lollipop balls down to one of the players and him bashing it out of the stadium and them all going, is, is this good? Is this bad? But also being, <laughs> I, I don't, have you ever seen a professional player do range hitting up close? No, I have never seen it in the flesh. So I never saw Kluzner. Um, he, he was well before my time, but I've seen Chris Gale do it. Uh, I saw Chris Gale do it in Sri Lanka where he was hitting the ball out of the stadium and there was a tin roof on a, on a factory like across the thing and he was aiming at it, right? Wow. And he was hitting it. I mean, it must have almost killed people because there was a roundabout out there too. So I'm not <laughs> sure he, he wasn't just landing the ball. But when you see someone do that, and by that stage, I knew range hitting had existed. I'd seen other people do it and it was still incredible. I can only imagine what it was like for the Australian cricketers who were about to win that World Cup Seeing Lance Kluzer and just be like, the game has changed. And, you know, Ponting's a young guy at this point, and he's, you know, coming, you know, he's um, thought to be the cutting edge of batting and everything. And Kluzer was so beyond anyone's thinking. Um, in a way that, as, as I said, the only other player I would could, I would put on that level is Afridi. But Afridi's mm. was a lot more, I just want to hit the ball hard, which is, it's like Afridi was a great slogger. And I don't mean that in yeah. a bad way because I, I, I love him and I love the way he went about it. Whereas there was, there was more of the science of um, pugilism about Lance Kaluza. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? There was, he might have thought about it differently and he might not have looked like a conventional batter, but he averaged, I think he averaged 40 in first class cricket with a bat. Right, hmm. and he did it. There was more insurance, basically, when he was hitting it out there. You just felt like there was more insurance. I, 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 the big difference between him and Afridi is when when Kluzler was batting well, you didn't think he'd miss. And I think that's the insurance thing that you're talking about. Do you know what I mean? Like hmm. there, there was a real element when you were watching him batting of we shouldn't miss this. Whereas with Afridi, he'd hit a six, and you'd be like, well, he could miss the next five balls. Like he could not hit another ball here, and then hit three sixes in a row. Right, yeah. and and Kluzler, it just looked. I don't want to say mechanical, but like. You know, he, he looked like Joe Frazier. Are, are you a boxing mm. fan at all? Yeah, I know about Joe yeah. Frazier, of course. So Joe Frazier <laughs> is not Muhammad Ali, right? Muhammad Ali mm. is the one you want to be, right? But Joe Frazier... Does that make Afridi Sonny Bill Williams? No, that, make, that makes that makes Afridi um, uh, uh, um, Muhammad Ali because you want to be the poetic, oh. beautiful hitter, right? Mm. But Joe Frazier got absolutely everything out of him Itself and did a lot of things right with his boxing, and, uh, you know, and came up in a different kind of way. 
Whereas Muhammad Ali just went, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And, and then eventually Muhammad Ali becomes very smart when he's older and becomes a different boxer. But young Muhammad Ali is, you know, I'm going to keep my hands down because you're not going to be able to catch me. Right. Um, whereas Joe Frazier's almost like got his arms up the whole time and is just going through mm. you like a, a bulldozer. And, you know, I think Kluzna is very much like that. And, but it was just more for, for Kluzna, it was just more replicable. He could do it more mm. often than other like, Lance Cairns, right, or mm. or um, uh, Kapil Dev, because it wasn't like he these got you know that Kluzner invented hitting, but it was the the fact he could do it over and over again against pace and against spin. Yeah, that's a pretty fun analogy over there, and also a really nice anecdote anecdote about a puncher early on. Also, if anyone is keeping track of the amount of times uh, Jared Howell. brings up Benny Howell mm. in our podcast, just take a shot for every single time and tell me. Let me know if you're drunk or not, because well, I, I feel like being a coma. you'd probably be. Really challenging your liver at that point. Um, but anyway, and yeah, range hitting uh, kind of gave me an idea that they should be like top golf for batting. I'd do it. I'd love it. Um, anyway, South Africa uh, won 78% of their games in the late 90s. They had the best win-loss ratio in the world at that time. And their run differential was plus nine runs per wicket. And the next best was Australia at what, 2.7? So I want to understand how big of a cog was Lance Klusner in that South African team, which made it tick. I, I suppose the first thing is that he was the fifth bowler. Hmm. And as the fifth bowler, you weren't really getting a noticeable weakness. So if he had been the fourth bowler for other teams, um, I don't think that would have been, I think teams would have taken that. Do you know what I mean? Like, hmm. I, I think they would have said, He's the fourth best bowler in this side, and he's absolutely fine, and he can and he can do the job. So being the fifth bowler, you know, if you compare that to, you know, Australia used people like Darren Lehman as their fifth bowler, right? And and you know, mm. I, I mean, Pakistan had you know famously five bowlers, but a lot of other teams did not. And Sachin had to be the fifth bowler, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So now you've got a guy right. who can take a seven wicket haul in a test match, um, who's a clever bowler, uh, not particularly fast, but knows what he's doing. Um, you know, it's quite, quite good at bowling cutters and things like that. So it meant they had no weakness in their bowling. And then with their batting, what, it, what he allowed for in their batting was that they could, because they had Boucher, because they have Sean Pollock, um, and, and I'm trying to think, is there, is there another one I'm missing? No, I think it was just those guys. But they had the ability to um, bat him at number nine if they wanted to, right? Mm. And they could he, could, he could bat it number three and he could bat at number nine and they had so much depth to their batting and so much flexibility which meant that there's a situation where you need Boucher to go in at number five and they would just move Boucher up the order to bat at number five and then uh there's a there's a particular kind of team that you want to put pressure on you use Klusner at number three or number four um you could hold him back to the last five overs without really worrying too much so you had the flexibility with him and and having an all-rounder who wasn't giving back anything with ball. He was only an average bowler, but he was an average bowler. As in, hmm. if you're an average bowler, you're already a, a plus, right? Because yeah. only 33% or 30% of, of cricketers are going to be average, right, at the international hmm. level. So he wasn't giving anything back with the ball. He gave them flexibility. Um, you know, he could seam it around when he wanted to and, and uh, sing, swing it around sometimes as well. Um, and then with the batting, also, he, he gave them flexibility. If, you know, if they wanted a pinch hitter, he could pinch it. If they wanted to hmm. hold him back for the death, he could do that. If they wanted, I, I actually think that if he played more in modern cricket, his best role is probably that Joss Butler role which is coming in around that 35 over mark would have been ideal for him. Um, and I think they, they didn't even get the most out of him probably in that way. But if every game they know they have five frontline bowling options, oh, that Hansi Kronje was the other one. So Hansi Kronje could bowl as well. So they had five frontline bowling options and they could use Hansi Kronje as their sixth bowler and they could bat to number Gall nine. Gallus was probably around as well, right? I think Callis, Callis certainly played for them, but I don't think he was always in the one-day side I don't mm. know how much he played in that 96 to 99 uh, period. Um, I'd have to think back. But yeah, no. so Callis is another example. So sometimes they would have a batting lineup that could go to nine and they would also have um, seven bowling options. And they had Nicky Boyer as well, who um, mm. maybe not quite, on, obviously not as talented as the other guys, but again, gave them uh, more flexibility within their side um, of, of what they could do. So 
what they had is, and, and the funny thing is, we talk a lot about England, but if you look at Sri Lanka in 1996, Sri Lanka basically had Shaminda Vass at number nine and they had mm -hmm. multiple bowling options in their top six. Um, and so they had, you know, a, a huge amount of flexibility, uh, available to them, um, in that way. And very, very similar thing with, um, uh, with that 96 to 99 South African team, which is just endless flexibility and options that they had available to them, um, you know, through they, they could have, they could have picked a team that batted to 11 at any stage if they wanted to. Right. And they still would have been, uh, they still would have been able to take wickets. So. Um, I'm just sorry. I'm just trying to have a look. Yeah. So Callus, so Callus has only played six games up until 1997, and he plays uh, a few more. Oh wait, is this Tess or Wondos? Sorry, I'll take that back. Uh, he's only <laughs> played. Um, Callus played. Oh no, no, he starts to play pretty regularly. I'm trying to remember um, how much he bowled in that because I think there's a period where he doesn't bowl as much in in one day cricket. But you know, so Callus and Klusner are the sorry Callus and um, uh, Cronier, Cronier are the two other bowlers. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was a, I don't think they had a, a scrub spinner, but Nicky Bowyer, as I was saying before, so he averages, um, around 25, 26 with a bat as well. So yeah, I, in fact, my memories of Nicky Bowyer are more with the bat and less with the ball. Yeah. He wasn't a particularly good bowler for being honest, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I, I think, um, you look at some of those early years, um, just look at Callis now, he actually doesn't bowl that much. Uh, he, he plays 14 games and takes four wickets his first year and 15 games and takes four wickets the second year. So that is because they have so much options, right? And Klusner right. allows them flexibility with bat and ball. He could bowl at the death if you needed him to. Um, probably a bit more flexible with the ball than Callis was. Um, mm -hmm. And again, probably more flexible with the bat because he could play in more positions. Although they did seem to see him as a bowling all-rounder for way longer than they probably should have. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, his batting exploits are remembered more. But speaking about his bowling, you know, Zulu did end up with 17 wickets in nine innings in the 99 World Cup. And this, as you mentioned, is as the fifth bowler. And uh, yeah, fourth highest wicket taker in the tournament, which is phenomenal. Only three guys were above him. And there's an interesting story where you mention how, you know, another hero of the 99 World Cup, Neil Johnson of Zimbabwe, who was actually born in Harare, but raised in South Africa. He could have easily played for the Proteas, but Klusner was blocking his spot, right? And it speaks volumes, that the, the fact that really both of these guys had, had a stellar 99 World Cup. And even Neil Johnson was one of those players that everyone remembers from that tournament. So even his backup was great. <laughs> it's ridiculous when you think about it. And, and you know, we talked about Callis, we talked about Cronier, Pollock obviously can bat. Um, mm -hmm. Then you got, you know, uh, Nicky Boyer. Uh, who else have we got? Um, Brian McMillan. Only Alan Donald doesn't bat. Yeah, Bri in that lineup. Brian McMillan was that period before as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think. If, I feel like there's another all rounder. I'm forgetting there. But the Danny De Villiers, but early '90s. Though, I don't right? know if he could bat though. To be fair, but but what mm -hmm. I'm saying is that they had these guys who, like when Neil Johnson's coming through, if he comes through in Australia, he probably just has a position. You know, like Shane Lee and Ian Harvey. Um, you know, he's certainly of their level of talent when you look at that '99 mm -hmm. World Cup. Um, and he, I think he plays an A game, uh, but, you know, doesn't, doesn't particularly, uh, do all that much, um, uh, you know, outside of, outside of that, that, that little eight, uh, that A game for South Africa. And again, where was Andrew Hall at that time? Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but Andrew Hall was another one of those similar profile players, right? I want to say Andrew Hall is after that because he plays in 2007, doesn't he? Hmm. So I, and three, if I recall. Yeah. So he's. He played for years too, didn't he? Because uh, I think mm -hmm. he was playing counter cricket up until not that long ago. Even though he's forty eight, I think he was still playing uh, a long period. So Andrew Hall, he plays. He only plays eighty eight games, but yeah, he makes his debut in ninety. So he makes his debut that year and finishes in mm. in the World Cup in two thousand and. Um, no, actually, he would have finished just after the World Cup, I think, or around that period anyway. So. Um, they're so, they had so many players like that that they didn't really need Neil Johnson. But it's ridiculous thinking back that, you know, they had this player of that ability. Um, and then you, you, but you also think about, you know, Klusner as a one-day bowler. Um, his skills very much suited to English conditions, you know, nipping it around a little bit, hitting the pitch, um, you know, uh, that kind of bowler. There were probably places where he could have struggled a little bit more. But to be fair, he was so clever that generally he, he made it work. But you would have to say that that is sort of the golden era of his bowling, at least in one-day cricket.
it's crazy how we've just spoken a lot about his bowling, but it's really his batting that is do- is going to dominate the conversation, at least in the- this podcast. Now, Klusner in the 99 World Cup averaged north of 100 with the bat, and he struck at 122. Now, those are ridiculous numbers, even by modern day standards, right? And the fact that he is still the only player to have achieved this feat in World Cup cricket, and it's quite a remarkable double, right? You've got a- an average in three figures and you're striking better better than run a ball this is outrageous <laughs> yeah it's and and as i said we have to go back and remember that no one was really expecting that from him he was a fringe player like you look at the way their lineup started um he wasn't really a a front like seen as a frontline player going in like there wasn't uh there wasn't this thought that Kluzner was going to be a major part it, it, that's not to say that he wasn't rated or anything like that because i think that would be the wrong way of putting it but he, I don't think, I'm just having a look now, before that year, he'd never made 500 runs in a calendar year of, of one-day cricket, mm. right? And so wow. there was no thinking that this is a guy who was going to be able to do that and have that kind of an impact. Um, he, and, and also, my early memory of his batting was that everyone thought that he was very good on sort of hard, flat, Australian kind, kinds of wickets. Um, and... Uh, you know, and, and Australian, sorry, South African type of wickets, I should have said. Because yeah. um, I think he's got a ridiculous record. Uh, I didn't put it in the video, but I, I, I think he's got a ridiculous record when he plays at home compared to when he plays mm. away. And uh, so there's certainly an element, again, of, of like, why would you expect this guy who bats at 789 to have an impact? I mean, we, we talked about that for this World Cup, right? Like you were talking mm-hmm. about different players and when they could bat. And I was like, you can't have an impact on a World Cup if you bat at seven, eight, or nine. Like, it's just not something that happens, right? But Klusner, by the end of that tournament, did. And there's two reasons for that. One, he was fantastic. Two, the South Africans made no runs. They were terrible mm-hmm. outside of him. He was the leading run scorer. It was like him and Herschel Gibbs on, on their own, I think. I think he was the third highest run scorer, right? There were two guys ahead of him. One of them was probably Herschel Gibbs. Oh, was but it? His... I thought he was the leading yeah. run scorer for them. But you might be right. But 280 runs. Surely someone else scored 300 runs for South Africa. Two guys. From what I recall, he was third highest scorer for them. Yeah, but that's still right, remarkable, right? Coming in those numbers, like in the lower order. Didn't he bat at number nine in, order. in one game? Yeah, he came out at nine in one game. And then seven and eight was more so the norm. But, uh, you know, before Klusner in 99, only four players with a minimum of 250 runs in a World Cup had struck at uh, better than run a ball. Mm. And look at these names. You know, Viv Richards, Kapil Dave, Brian Charles, Lara, Andrew Hudson as well, another South African that not many people might know about. But, you know, when South Africa returned to ODI cricket, he, he was quite the basher. And uh, after Klusner, of course, because he achieved this feat, it took three World Cups till Sehwag did it again. And then Joss Butler struck at the same rate as Klusner 20 years later in 2019. He's changed the game, Jared. And But he didn't, did he? Because mm. no one could catch up. So in yeah. some ways, he was such an outlier that I think he changed the game in the way that people maybe looked for more non-traditional ways of scoring and certainly the, the um, range hitting and all that sort of stuff. And also, mm-hmm. there was a period where a lot of batters were, got really bulky because he was really bulky. Um, mm. Like muscular, I should say, not you know, uh, not that he was overweight or anything, but he was really, really muscular and had this incredible bo- body, right? Like he, he didn't look yeah, like. I'm, I'm happy you clarified that because there's a chance Umar Akmal might be watching this podcast and he'd be like, "Oh, hey, <laughs> that's what I did." Well, I mean, <laughs> he, he's he doesn't look like he's got a cricket his body, like um, yeah. even compared to like you know someone like Matt Hayden. You know, we have mm. had cricketers like Clive Lloyd and and um, uh, Wally Hammond before with similar kind of physiques. I don't know of anyone else off the top of my head that had a similar kind of body to what Lance Kluzer had in cricket. It's probably more of a rugby body, if we're, if we're being honest. And yes, I think he did change the game, but I think it took ages for it to actually manifest just because he was so far ahead of his time. I mean, we, we talk about the Joss Butler 2019 World Cup as being fantastic, and yet there was nothing compared to Kluzner's, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and the ability to strike at that rate on its own over 280 runs, I think. Um, yeah. You know, not many balls, to be fair, but 280 runs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right, there were two other batters, Herschel Gibbs and Callis. They were the two that, that went past him. But they batted like opening go. and first drop, mm. right? Or second drop, wherever wherever Callis was in that tournament. To be able to do that later on. And also, when I say he batted down the order, I don't want you to think that like 
like Mamudullah in this current World Cup, where it's like, well, he's batting at number seven and number eight, but he's actually coming in the 15th over. Some games, yeah. Klusner, they were holding him back even then. And he was coming in at like with three or four overs to go because that's what they kind of thought he was going to be best at. Um, and he completely uh, changed what that was. But the, I, for me, it was always the, it's a combination of striking at that speed without going out. Yeah, no, it's a remarkable, I'd say, combination because you talk about players, even right now, we were talking about players who average more than 40 and strike at over 100. I know our team was obsessing over this. And I think Butler, Klassen, and uh, David Miller, those, those were the three players that we came up with. And this guy in World Cup struck at uh, 122 and averaged 100. So I think that's just ridiculous. But of course, we're talking about the 99 World Cup, so we can't help but talk about that mix-up in the semi-final, uh, the very famous run-out that... Well, but before Kuzner we get there, was, I, I, I hmm. think we will get there. What I found more interesting when I was doing this is, and I remember that tournament quite well. We didn't get all the games, but it was the one that we, where the games were replayed the most. And Neil Johnson, like I wanted a Neil Johnson shirt, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, the Bangladesh games, or the two Bangladesh games are quite famous. There are all these like little interesting things about that World Cup. But even then, I don't think it was until I started making this project that I realized that Klusner is the bowler when Herschel Gibbs drops Steve Waugh as well. Like, yeah. he's involved in so many different narratives in this tournament. <laughs> so for the, those not young enough to remember, like, uh, Australia is really struggling in the first game uh, against South Africa. And it's the last game of the Super 8s, I think, isn't sixes. it? Sixes. Was it Super 6s? Super 6s. Yeah, which I can't remember. Mm -hmm. There was a Super 8s at one stage. It was a Super 6s at another. I can't remember which one's which. But There's been a bunch of Super 4s as well. So, yeah, yeah. Super 6s is what you're looking for. And uh, <laughs> so they're playing each other. And Australia have had a terrible World Cup at this point. Right. And they, you know, a very, very similar kind of story to, you know, Pakistan in 92, where you're just like, they probably shouldn't be in it with a chance. They also had that game where they purposely batted slow against the West Indies uh, to ruin New Zealand's um, chances of getting through to the tournament. But that's a whole different story. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so Kluzner is is bowling to Steve Waugh and Australia have, have they've just got a partnership back where I think it was him and Ponting I want to say but they mm. just got a partnership back where they were back in the game and probably slightly in front with this partnership it's 152 for three that's where, we, where they were at. yeah that sounds right and uh what were they chasing was it 270 280 yeah it wasn't that low a score no no I think it was a probably. decent score yeah and yeah. so he gets this half volley on the stumps and he just flicks it across the line and it's straight to Herschel Gibbs Hits Herschel Gibbs' hands, and Herschel Gibbs, as he tries to throw it up, it just sort of rolls out the front of his hand. Um, yeah. And ends up on the ground. And, you know, obviously Ben Stokes did it in a test match recently. Herschel never tried mm -hmm. to claim it or anything. Like, it was instantly <laughs> not a catch, and, and everyone, uh, everyone there sort of knew that. And, yeah, as I said, Klusner is the bowler there. And so that is already a huge moment to be involved with. And then you get to the last game. And I, I want to – that last game is really, really interesting because it's not talked about enough. And we've got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to go through it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, South Africa, Australia don't make many runs. Um, I think Bevan and Steve Waugh again, I think, um, carried them to about 210. Um, sorry, I should have mm -hmm. all the scores, but I wrote this a couple of weeks Two, ago. 213, 213 to be specific. Well that was the target. All the Australians will remember this, and the South mm -hmm. Africans have already blocked it out of their memory forever. Um, yeah. And I've seen the highlights of this game more than I've seen of any other neutral team game, I'd say. Yeah, well, there's a funny joke that it was shown so often on English TV, despite the fact England didn't play in this game, that <laughs> uh, Steve Elworthy, when he worked for the ECB, his staff would say, you're about to get smashed for six here because they knew the exact time that Ponting would hit Steve Elworthy for six. Um, but <laughs> so, so they've got that small total. And of course, Australia is flying. Uh, sorry, South Africa is flying in the chase. And it's Herschel Gibbs and Gary Kirsten and suddenly, out of nowhere, Shane Warne comes in and rips out. He rips out Herschel Gibbs with probably a ball better than the Gatting ball. And then he also bowls mm -hmm. a ball which spins so far it goes to slip and it's given out despite the fact that Hansi Cronier doesn't hit it, right? Like, that's how much he was ripping it that the umpire just assumed that that ball had been hit. So after that, um, it's more of an arm wrestle. And, you know, Australia worked their way back into the game. And then clues that yeah, come out. They were out. 48 for no loss, South Africa, after 12 overs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's where they were at. And and so that it's more of an arm wrestle after that point, after Warren gets involved and he takes more wickets, of course. And and again, Klusner, if I remember correctly, do you remember when Klusner comes in in that game? How's your memory now? Hmm. I would like to say when South Africa's score was around 120 to 130. That's interesting. 
It'll be very, very interesting. So, um, so they're 48 for none, and Klusner comes in after Sean Pollock. Hmm. Right? So at number eight. Yeah. So this is, remember, he's already averaging about 100 in this tournament at this stage, right? I don't know if yeah. he was just over 100 or not, but I think he was at that hmm. point with a strike rate of a million. And they actually <laughs> sent Sean Pollock in ahead of him. Uh, which is still remarkable to me, right? So then um, yeah. Pol Pollock goes out uh, and they, uh, Boucher is there. Boucher gets a, uh, a Yorker from McGrath and then Steve Elworthy is run out in the second last over. And so at this stage, they are, they're chasing uh, that 213 and they're kind of falling down everywhere. Um, at that point. So I think they lost two wickets in the 49th over at that point. So I'm just trying to bring it all up. Yeah. So they, they, <laughs> they lose two wickets there. And then after they lose the, uh, the Elworthy run out, um, Klusner hits a full toss straight down Longhorn's throat. And I still remember thinking when I saw it live and even now I've seen it and I know it's not quite true. It feels like Klusner hits the ball so hard that it goes through um, the hands of Rifle. And the great thing about all this is if you listen, Damian Fleming's been so honest about this. And I think some of the other Australian players as well, but Damian Fleming's been really, really honest because he was involved in it so much. Mm -hmm. I'm saying Australia was choking. And it's funny how that yeah. narrative has never been, you know, I, I, I did, it, the only reason it doesn't work is because we'll talk about what happens in a moment. But Rifle should have taken that catch. Um, that was, they were already nine wickets down. That catch would have ended the game. Instead, hmm. gets the six because it hits Rifle's hands and goes up off his hands over the boundary. Uh, and then you and then you have the, um, and then he gets a single, I think. Yeah, he gets a single off the next ball. And so at the, uh, the last over, um, uh, you know, they need nine runs off that last over. And Fleming, I think he comes around the wicket twice and bowls two great Yorkers outside of stump. And Klusner just, he, he misses his length slightly, I should say, but Klusner just absolutely smashes them, right? And so they needed nine off the last over, and they are, the scores are tied with uh, two balls uh, with four with two balls down, so four balls to come. Absolutely, yeah, one run off four deliveries. Yeah, one run off four deliveries. Then, <laughs> what all that needs to happen at that point is that Kluzner and Donald need to come down and have a very calm discussion. I don't think either of them have ever said exactly what they said to each other, but it's quite clear that they did talk to each other, but it wasn't calm. It wasn't a proper discussion. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't really think about what they were doing the way that they should have. And so the next ball, Donald just takes off as Kluzner hits the ball up to mid on. And Darren Lehman, of all people, flies in and a left hander goes into his left hand. And all he has to do is underarm it at the stumps, and Donald is out and he misses it. So again, Australia has now choked twice. Australia should have won this game twice at this point, but South Africa also choked on that ball. Again, mm -hmm. Kluzner just needs to come down. And talk to Annal and Donald and say, we've got three balls left. Give me a couple of balls. And if I can't get one through the field, then we're just going to run for anything. That does mm. not appear to have happened. And what actually happens is after Donald overreacting and taking a run where there was no run, the next ball, Kluzner misses the ball back down the wicket. And it's, oh, Australia make another mistake here, Bayram, because they forget to get a fielder to come into the stumps at the bowler's end, which you always do mm. when the scores are level because the bowler can never get back in time. They forget to do that. Mark War tears around from mid on and then picks the ball up, backhands it beautifully, but misses the stumps. And Fleming's like three meters from the stumps, right? But wow. at this stage, Klusner is almost next to Donald. And Donald, of course, because the ball's come next to him as well. I think he's like, well, I can't, can I run? Can I run? Should I not run? And he hasn't noticed that Klusner is just gone. Right, and then suddenly Donald realizes that Klusner's there. Fleming's got the ball. Fleming panics again, and instead of just throwing it to Gilchrist, he <laughs> rolls it along the ground like a Trevor Chapel <laughs> moment, which is absolutely wow. extraordinary that that would happen in Australian cricket of all things. And Donald drops his bat somewhere along that line and is run out. And the thing is that Donald, I think Donald's been pretty clear over the years that it wasn't his fault, kind of forgetting that the ball before was his fault. And that was part of the thing that, that brought about it. But Klusner, I saw him in an interview where he was just really honest about it. And he was saying, I, we shouldn't have been in that situation. We shouldn't have been nine wickets down. All tournament, mm -hmm. we just talked about it. The guy who was batting at number eight in the semifinal was, um, uh, was the third leading run scorer. They didn't make runs in their top order over and over again. But no one remembers that. And instead, they remember this run out at the end where 
Um, the scores are tied, and because they lost that previous game, it means they don't go through to the final. Australia win three titles in a row. South Africa never emotionally recover. I think that would be fair to say. <laughs> and Klusner is actually the best player in that tournament. And South Africa mm. were the best one-day team. In the- they were certainly a better one-day team than Australia over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Whether they were at the end, I think they were probably a lot closer by the time we got to the end of the 99 World Cup looking at those two games. But there's no doubt that South Africa was the better team and there's no doubt that Lance Klusner was the best player in the world. And instead of being remembered in that way, he actually gets more remembered for the run out at the end, even if he doesn't get the blame that he probably should for the actual uh, final decision. It's just... It really is, you know, when when you go back through, when I did the book on Test Cricket, I've, I've talked about this a lot, but you look at those games that everyone talks about and you're looking at them from a perspective of why does everyone talk about this? This doesn't make any sense. That's why I always want to do that. I always want to debunk why people like something. And it's very rare that you do. There's always a reason. And I would say that there's so many young fans are like, are you, there are, about there are some highlights, although people are taking them down off the internet at the moment. But mm, there are a lot of highlights online where you can see like the last forty minutes of that game, and it mm. is like nothing you will ever see. Just the panic and the Sean Pollock nature and the two runouts and the rifle drop and Damien Fleming being like, "I've just delivered the ball exactly where I wanted to deliver it," and this behemoth of a man has just made <laughs> me look like an absolute idiot. Um, it's just, it's so, it really is one of the great narratives um, we've ever had in a World Cup over a two-game period. And, well, they, the games are like four days apart as well. It's just, yeah. and by the time it got to the final, as you're aware, I know you're only five at the time, but by the time you got to the final, <laughs> Pakistan were a great team. Pakistan were better in the late 90s than they were in the early 90s when they won the World Cup, right? Yeah. And yet Australia just feel invincible by that point. And Pakistan don't even turn up for the final. It's completely one-sided. They're blown away. And really, the final is these other two games that will be remembered forever. And and I hope that if one day cricket does die out and doesn't have the longevity, Mm -hmm. or even if international cricket, I hope that those games are remembered, like that, Mm -hmm. that we had moments like that. Because I remember the game, and I remember when Shane Warne took Herschel Gibbs and it was about one in the morning, I reckon, in Australia. Someone who remembers mm. the time zones better will, might be able to quote me. But I remember it was about one in the morning. And I ran into the bedroom to tell my dad, you won't believe what's just happened. And he said, fuck off. <laughs> so I went back and I watched it. Then I ran back in later. I said, you have to get up and watch this game. And he's like, it's a one day. I don't care. And I was like, you don't understand. And then later I went and I stayed up watching the whole thing. I'm just yelling. Um, and I think mm. he got up with about 20 minutes to go just because I was so loud. And then he was just absolutely transfixed. And he hated one-day cricket, hated it, Bayram. But it wasn't one-day cricket. It was just incredible theater. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Hmm. I think it's a great narrative and you've done justice to that narrative with your monologue. And yeah, I mean, I think like, even though I didn't watch that World Cup live, everyone knows this story, even the backstory of the previous game and how Australia qualified for the final because they'd won that game. Of course, you mentioned how Gibbs dropped uh, Steve Waugh's catch off clues in his bowling and then Steve Waugh famously said to him that oh, you've, you've dropped this match or something which got like paraphrased to you've dropped the World Cup. That's of course... Another great story. And Steve Waugh doesn't refute those paraphrase, paraphrase words, by the way. He's, he, he rolls with it. He, did, he does <laughs> in his original book, by the way. And then since then, he hasn't. <laughs> so he corrected it on the yeah. record in his book. He's like, I don't want to lie on my book. But everywhere else, if you want to say I said that, I said that. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's a funny tongue in cheek sort of thing. Uh, love that. But anyway, we also obviously you touched on that dropped catch and how Kruzner was involved. You talked about the run out and then the almost run out and then the dropped catch and everything that led up to that moment. But what we forget is that, and to quote you, is that at that time South Africa's you know batting lineup it had like England's depth, but Bangladesh's scoring rate, right? <laughs> yes. Which is quite an analogy on its own. I mean that's. You can completely understand exactly what sort of team they were with the bat, right? And it just feels a bit unfair to Klusner that he was the third highest scorer in that team. He was the only batter who was scoring quick runs. He was the fourth highest wicket taker in this tournament. So an average in three figures with the bat, a strike rate of 122, 17 wickets with the ball, fourth highest wicket taker. And yet we remember him for that run out and the heartbreak and how, you know, like you mentioned, South Africa have never recovered from that. I just feel like, you know... It's a disservice mm. to the sport and to all of the people and enthusiasts who give so much of a fuck about cricket that they wouldn't know the actual full story, which is why I think this podcast is great. It, it's why well, I wanted to make it. So I actually started this project in 2019 and I think mm. I was writing about Shakib and maybe Jadeja, maybe Sanjay Mandrake had made his comments around that time. I can't remember if, if that's what it was, but I think so. And I was writing about all rounders and like in the middle of this piece about how great Shakib had been in World Cups, like I had like 800 words on Kluster and I was like, I can't, it's it just, it's it's unfair to Shakib. And also like, I can't tell the full story of Kluster in these 800 words, but I kept yeah. those notes for years and I, mm. I was desperate. And when this World Cup came around, I was like, this is it. This is going to be my time. You know, I've got the YouTube channel now. Um, I can do exactly what I want. Um, and I really wanted people to know that he wasn't he wasn't the comedy at the end, that he was the hero that wasn't fulfilled, right? And I and I really wanted that to be the narrative and the story about Lance Kluster because I think he changed the way I thought about cricket, and he gave us these incredible stories as well. Not and, and he changed the way that, as you said before. He was a trailblazer. Even if it took years for people to catch up, they did try and yeah. do what he did. You know, it just, mm -hmm. All these different things. And because of that one moment where, and look, he's batting with a number 11 and maybe he did tell the yeah. number 11 and Alan Donald was not a particularly good batter. And, he's, you know, there's that famous story about Alan Donald where he's commentating with Neil Manthorpe during a one day and then suddenly realizes he's got to go in and bat next or something. Like, <laughs> it's not a man who was completely thinking about batting and everything else, right? Which, which that could have been timed out. Yeah, could have been done. So <laughs> I get I get all of all that sort of stuff, but I don't I didn't want clues that would be remembered that way because I think for those of us who lived it and were of the age, right? For us, Kluzner was a hero all the way through. And then the team couldn't lift him up at the end. And the narrative, of course, is you don't get to see all those innings where he smashed everyone everywhere. You don't get to see the innings where he took five for against Zimbabwe or Kenya. Was it Kenya? Yeah. I think it was Kenya. Do you know what I mean? Like in all the things he did in the tournament that they needed at different times, right? You don't see any of that on those clips at the end. What do you see? There was you you see him hit a couple of fours and then be involved in that run out, right? And yeah. and I wanted to show that this was one of the best and originally I wanted to do it as a thing of was this one of the best World Cups of all time? And it probably was, but mm. I I I actually stopped and I pulled away from that. I had like a thousand words on all these different players who'd had the best World Cups and how he compared to mm. them. And I think I could have made a claim that it was the best World Cup that anyone ever played, right? Mm. But in the end, I was like, I don't want it to be that. I just want, for the first time ever, for this to be about Lance Kluzner and how good he was. And I think that cricket actually owed him that, you know, that little bit. And occasionally people talk about his hitting and everything, don't get me wrong. But in the end, we don't talk about what an incredible, mo well, entire world cup he gave us and i didn't just want it to be about the end i wanted it to be about what he had done beforehand as well yeah it definitely was an mvp performance and i think maybe sometime in the future if you have more time you could do the whole true strike rate and true economy oh, sort of analysis i can't even imagine what his true well. strike rate would be 
yeah, it would be absolutely ridiculous. Especially if you put it on a comparative scale with his teammates, you know, his teammates were what, striking at 73, I think, something like that. And he's striking at 122, which is amazing. And I think it's very important that you mentioned that, sure, we've even in this podcast touched on, you know, the, the great knock that he played in that final leading up to, or sorry, semi-final leading up to that disaster of a run out. But in that World Cup, you know, he had some great games. There's that game versus Sri Lanka in which he comes out to bat at, I don't know, seven down for 100 and something. And South Africa posts a target of 200. And then he takes wickets, I think three of them, to defeat Sri Lanka versus Pakistan. South Africa were 135 for seven, I think. He comes out to bat. He sees them through. There's a great game versus Zimbabwe and England. And there's, a, there's an India game well, too, so. where he comes in really, hmm. really late. And India have a sniff of a victory. And he just goes bang, bang, bang. And it's just... His impact was so immediate and his ability, especially in those days, to hit boundaries from ball yeah. one, even now, w- it would stand out, right? And, and, and you're right, there, yeah. there are so many games all the way through and we could, you know, we could go through them and obviously I, I do a little bit more in, 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 in the video, but it is, it is not just the semifinal, it's not just the game against Australia and then the semifinal. He was so good all the way through that tournament at different times. It was just remarkable. Yeah, yeah, really. And uh, for you, for those of you who haven't seen him bat, definitely, you know, uh, you should try and find a new YouTube channel because the one that we followed for all the highlights has been taken down. But anyway, to end this podcast, uh, I just want to highlight how Klusner, you know, if you look at his career numbers, he's striking at 90. He's averaging 40 plus with the bat. And considering he comes and bats at those numbers, right? Seven, eight, nine, that sort of stuff. You know, for guys who are coming in at that position, these are astronomical numbers, Mm. right? It's, It's ridiculous. And only Mike Hussey, MS Dhoni, and who was the third one? Michael Bevan. Those are the only three guys who average more you know, in that lower middle order sort of uh, area. And uh, we did a pod on Moin not too long ago. Moin, the test cricketer of how England have utilized them, him from positions 1 to 10 as a batter. Well, Klusner was something similar for South Africa, right? In ODI cricket. But, you know, given those numbers, even if the sample size is not as big as, let's say, uh, other stars from that era, because he had a short career, mm. but he still had 170-odd ODIs. And with those numbers, I think he can still be considered as a great of the game. Yeah, I think it I think you have to factor in his bowling. And if you factor in his bowling as being, as I said before, a par bowler, right? Of yeah. you're not really losing anything with his bowling. He took more than a wicket a game. He averaged under 30, 4.7 runs. He wasn't exceptional, obviously, but but he certainly was that. And then you're saying, well, he's in the argument to be in the bet, you know. I, th- I think I compared him to guys about at number six, seven, and eight, didn't I? I think in my in my in my piece, which is as you said, was Doni, Bevan, um, and Hussey. I, th- I think that's right. That 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 sounds right. Well, if you compare him to Razak, right? Razak had a truckload of wickets, close to 300 in ODIs. Mm. But his batting was, um, well, not as good as Klusner's. Probably averaged 10 runs less than him. So well, Razak is a perfect example of there was absolutely nothing wrong as Razak. He probably had some incredible peaks, a bit like um, Klusner. But mm. Razak was, I'm just having a look now. So his, bowl, his, uh, his bowling uh, was an average of 32. So and yeah. so he didn't he didn't have as good a record with the ball, uh, and then mm-hmm. he's batting. He averaged twenty nine with a strike rate of eighty one. Razak is we we talked about this recently. He's got phenomenal numbers, right? And should be remembered yeah. as an incredible cricketer. Klusner's so above that, and mm-hmm. and it's it's that kind of I don't want to say either of them are bits and pieces because they're not right. But it's a bit mm-hmm. like Jadeja. It's like ah, oh, but he's not great enough to be in the side as this or whatever or or this, but. When you put together the entire package, they are just absolutely next-level talents. And uh, look, I, I do think Klusner probably deserves to be remembered as one of the best lower-order players in ODI cricket history. And, uh, you know, to be fair to Hussey and Bevan, um, although Bevan did bowl a little bit at times, they weren't first-choice bowlers, right? And, and Klusner yeah. was. And I, I think that is just... Uh, I, I think it's a remarkable record, and he was a brilliant cricketer. I think he's a brilliant cricketer to watch, but he also is a brilliant cricketer on numbers. And so there's something mm. quite, you know, and then he's, he's a mold breaker, right? There's so many different facets to, you know, a guy who averaged 40 with a bat and kind of, if you listen to him, never quite fully committed to saying he was a batter, right? You know, mm-hmm. didn't always want to bat up the order, like, and, and, and the other thing is, just, just to go back to what you said a moment ago, which I think was quite interesting, is that, you know, the Moeen Alley thing of England never being quite sure what to do with Moeen Alley. 
That happened to Kluzer, but it happened in a very different way. He was such an outlier that they didn't know. And, and Glenn Maxwell might be another very good example of someone like this. Such an outlier, they didn't know where to put him, right? Because he's telling them he's not a batter. His numbers are suggesting he's a batter. But aesthetically, he didn't look like Gary Kirsten or Jack Scalis, right? Like he didn't look yeah. like a batter. Like if, if, you, if you walked into a club game and you saw someone batting like that, you'd be like, ah, oh, Here's your number nine, and he's on. He wants to get off and have a brine and have a clippies and coke, right? No one is sitting there looking at Klusner thinking that's an elegant player or whatever. And so it didn't make sense if we had that Butler-like position, um, especially now that cricket has changed and the overs restrictions and everything has changed. You'd just be like, yeah. you get to the thirty-over mark and you say, Lance, you're in next, right? Mm -hmm. And if he bats for twenty overs, you've won the game. Pretty much. And I think if you consider the fact that he never looked at himself as a batter, South Africa always viewed him as a bowling all-rounder. Maybe that's what helped him unlock that sort of freedom mm, that really allowed him to go out and express himself. And maybe that's the beauty of this entire career, right? Because um, think about Glenn Maxwell, right? You expect him to fire with the bat. You expect mm. him to hit those sixes, even though George Bailey probably just selected him as a frontline spinner. But uh, that's a different story. And uh, yes, the Ravi Jadeja bits and pieces thing. I mean, I'd just select him for his fielding. He'd be my, what's that guy's name? What's that Glamorgan uh, fielder's name? It's not Glamorgan, the, it's Gloucestershire. And it's Jim, Gloucestershire, Jim Fote, yeah. isn't it? Jim Fote. Fote, Fote. That's fine. Fote. Yeah. Fote. Jim Fote, right. yes. Jim Fote is the guy. Yeah. Uh, great hair and those shades. I would I would pick Jadeja just based on that. But yeah, Klusner, I think when it comes to those, um, that profile of player, you know, uh, fifth bowler and uh, handy with the bat all-rounder. I think he was more than handy. So yeah, I think he was probably... He was better than most fifth bowlers and he was certainly better mm -hmm. than most bowlers, who, who most um, number sevens, right? Like number sevens... Imagine him at, you know, playing this World Cup ahead of Marco Janssen. Maybe. Oh, I mean, it would be an incredible team, right? They would have to change how they bowl. Yeah. But yes, it, such a, you know, what he could have been. And the thing is, he probably played in a better South African team than Marco Janssen did, <laughs> all things considered. And yet, yeah. he didn't win. Mm. And that's something that, you know, evades South African cricket. So let's see if they can turn that around this World Cup. But that's all from this episode of the Footmarks Podcast. Yeah. It's been a long night, guys. I'm probably going to head and sleep. But if you enjoyed it, send in a like and subscribe to the channel. Subscribe to the other channel as well. The, there are two Jared Kimber podcasts or well, two Jared Kimber YouTube channels now. So yeah, uh, you'll catch us again next week talking about something niche. But for now, enjoy Zulu against the world. That's all from us. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Saina Payu and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Do you make content but don't want to listen to yourself talk? Well, I get that. Memento FM's AI does all the listening for you. It picks out the highlights and it makes you sound far more amazing than you really are. Embrace Memento FM today.